Welcome to the October premium episode for Crime Lines. I want to thank you guys so much for your support, whether you're hearing this on Himalaya Plus or on Patreon. I am recording this as I wait for my morning coffee to kick in, so let's go ahead and get started. This month's bonus episode is on the disappearance and murder of Carol Blades from the small town of Nixa, Missouri. Nixa is located in Christian County, and it is due south of Springfield, Missouri. So we're talking about the same area that the Springfield 3 went missing in. Nixa is best known as the birthplace of Jason Bourne, the utterly fictional character in the Bourne movies and books. In spite of this rather exciting usage in a book. It's actually just a very standard Midwest small town. It's a nice town. It's really pretty. It's got its rough side, though. And in 1969, the time we're talking about, the population was around 1,600 people. A 20-year-old man named Larry Blades was working alongside someone named Lewis Horton in 1966, Lewis was married to Geraldine and had three children. One of those children was a 17-year-old daughter named Carol. One day in October 1966, the daughter Carol called Larry and asked him if he would take her out to her school play. This was a bold move for Carol, who was really rather shy and reserved. Larry said sure, and the two saw more and more of each other. Larry had never had a really serious girlfriend before, so this was definitely a first love situation for both of them. Carol graduated in 1967, and then she and Larry married the following year. They had the traditional church wedding, but they never went on a honeymoon because Larry had to get up early the next day to go to work at a bakery. And this is just the type of life they led. A lot of get up, go to work, come home, have dinner, get up, go to work. The usual for a young couple trying to make it. After they got married, Carol did work a bit, and she would babysit for people, but she was by and large a housewife, and she loved it. She would complain that there actually wasn't enough for her to do, They lived in a small five-room bungalow, and it was just the two of them, so there really wasn't a lot of cleaning to occupy her time. But the couple really wanted to have children. They wanted to have a bigger family, and they were really hoping, and they tried for a while, but they learned they would not be able to conceive. And fertility treatments in the late 1960s are not what they are today, so options were pretty limited. The couple started the process to adopt, and in early December 1969, they found out that their paperwork had been approved. They were ready for it, too. Carol had already set up a bassinet in the room. They had already bought baby clothes. They were ready. On the morning of Monday, December 15, 1969, 23-year-old Larry came home around 8 a.m., He worked the overnight shift, so he got off at 7, he drove the car, a Chevy Impala, and it was the couple's only car, that's important here. He drove the car to the gas station, filled it up, and then went home. So he got home a little later than usual. When he got there, Carol was already up. 
she set a basket of laundry on the couch and she said something to Larry about how she needed to take it to get washed. They didn't have machines at home, so she would go to the laundromat. It was about three or four miles from their house. Larry went to bed, assuming the couple would have their usual routine. Carol would run errands and do things, keeping herself busy while Larry slept. Then she would wake him up at 5 p.m., they would eat dinner, spend a couple hours together, and then he would head back to work. This is their routine, and this is what he expected was going to happen. So Larry's asleep when Carol left the house. She bumped into a friend at the Kmart in Springfield, Missouri. She was doing some Christmas shopping, and we know she went home after shopping because the gifts she bought at that Kmart were later found at the house. Carol then put up and decorated the Christmas tree and left the house again. It was cold, typical Missouri winter temps, so hovering right around freezing. I think on this day they were slightly below. So Carol was wearing a big white fur coat. At 3.45 in the afternoon, the phone rang at the Blades' house. It woke Larry up, which was unusual, since Carol would usually grab the phone before it could disturb him if she was home. By the time Larry got to the phone, the caller had hung up. That's when Larry noticed Carol wasn't there and the car was gone. But he also noticed the laundry basket that was on the couch was also gone. So he assumed she went to the laundromat and must still be there. He had a bit more than an hour to sleep, so he headed back to bed, expecting Carol to come wake him up at 5. Around 6.45 in the evening, the phone rang again. When Larry woke all the way up, he realized it was pitch blackout, and he had overslept. As he's fumbling for the phone in this half-alert, half-asleep state, he's wondering, why didn't Carol wake me up? And he grabs the phone. It's a friend who was just asking for some kind of favor. So Larry just asked, have you heard from Carol? The friend said she hadn't. So he hung up with her and called Carol's cousin, Sue. Sue and Carol were close. And so Carol would often visit with her when she was running her various errands. But Sue said she hadn't seen Carol all day. She did offer to drive over to the laundromat to see if Carol was still there. Larry was stuck at home because, remember, they only have this one car, so Sue went to the laundromat. When she got home, she called Larry back. She was worried now. She said Carol was not at the laundromat, but her clothes were. Most places say the clothes were still in the washer. A few say they were in the dryer, but it doesn't really matter. They were still there. And it would later be determined that she put the clothes in the machine around 2.55 p.m. But more alarming to Sue than the clothes being there and Carol not being there was that Sue saw Carol's car on her way to the laundromat. It was two blocks away from the laundromat, pulled over along Highway 160. Sue offered to go get Larry and drive him to the car to try to figure out what the heck is going on. So when they got to the Impala, Larry noticed that there was a sack of cookies on the passenger seat, and behind the driver's seat, he saw the photograph section of Carol's billfold torn out and discarded. This detail made me pause. 
I completely forgot wallets and billfolds used to come with these clear sleeves for photographs. You'd usually fill them up with wallet-sized school pictures. I don't know that I've seen a wallet like that in a very long time. Carol's actual wallet was gone. It was just this insert that had been left behind. And the keys to the car were also missing. Larry and Sue did a basic look around for Carol. They called people. They stopped in places she might be. Nobody had seen her. It wasn't long before Larry decided to go ahead and call the police, and he called the Christian County Sheriff's Department. The sheriff of Christian County at this time was a very controversial figure, Buff Lamb. Nothing says small-town sheriff like a name like Buff Lamb. Buff was obviously a nickname. His full name was Lured Elbert Lamb, which sounds even more like an old-timey sheriff name. But his name isn't what he is known for. He is known for his policing. Let's call it a style. Some people characterize him as no-nonsense, tough on crime. Others will say he policed his jurisdiction with an iron fist. He went just that step further. But there are a lot of people who call him a bully. They accuse him of brutality and harassing people just because he could. So Lamb is a controversial figure already, and going into this case, it's only going to get more so. Lamb decided from the start that Carol ran off. She was a wife leaving an unhappy marriage. And he pretty much didn't do anything, according to the family. But according to media reports, there was a search over two days, the Wednesday and Thursday after she went missing. So she went missing Monday. It was determined Monday night she was missing. Tuesday, Buff Lamb decided she ran off. But Wednesday and Thursday, there was a search. It was the police, about 75 volunteers, and a helicopter flying over. A friend who was helping search found the keys to the Impala in the field next to where the car was abandoned, but that's all that was found. The family said they asked Buff Lamb to bring in outside law enforcement, and he said no. They asked him to bring in search dogs. He said no. So this wasn't that in-depth search that most family members would want for their loved ones. But around the time the search is getting going, a private investigator gets involved. His name is Jim Winfrey. He and Larry were friends, and so he offered his services for free. There is a slight discrepancy in the next bit. Either Buff Lamb had the Impala immediately towed to the courthouse, where he let it sit out for three days before he fingerprinted it, Or he left it on the side of the road where it sat out for three days, and then he towed it to the courthouse and fingerprints were taken. But either way you slice it, the car was not secured or preserved in any way, and literally anyone could have touched it. It wasn't even locked. So even if they found a fingerprint of someone other than Larry or Carol or someone who had a reason to drive the car, how can they prove it wasn't from someone just being nosy in those three days after the disappearance. But according to Carol's family, didn't matter much because the sheriff's department didn't do anything with the fingerprints 
they did collect. They didn't send them to the state lab at Jeff City for analysis or comparison. They just fingerprinted the car and held on to the evidence. Again, Lamb thinks she ran off. When Larry and the PI went out to where Carol's car was, they saw a puddle of oil underneath. They also saw skid marks on the gravel. A full search of the car would later show that oil was splattered on the car's firewall, which is a metal plate between the engine and the passenger cabin part of the car. There was also mud on the windshield, fresh scratches on both sides of the car, and the antenna was bent. The PI checked the gas tank, and it was down eight or nine gallons. Knowing that Larry filled it up that morning, they did some driving to recreate Carol's path from the house to the Kmart back home, then out to the laundromat. Google Maps has made our lives so much easier in so many ways, but they did this drive, they clocked it, and then they did some math. They determined that the car used up way too much gas for Carol's driving. It was approximately 65 miles more worth of gas than she was known to drive. So where did Carol or her car go to use up all this gas? But Buff Lamb was not asking any of those questions. He asked Larry if Carol had ever dinged up the car before, which he said she had. So Lamb decided that she must have been afraid to go home after she scratched up the car, got it covered in mud for some reason, and she decided to run off, likely with another man. And he told this to Carol's parents, he told it to Larry, to the newspaper, to pretty much anyone who would listen. He told the papers that several people told him Carol wasn't happy at home, And since he had no evidence of foul play in or around the car, he took it to mean she must have left on her own free will. She ran off. She would make contact soon enough. No one who knew Carol believed this. She was shy. She was naive. She was not the type who would have met another man, conducted a covert affair so well that no one knew about it, and then planned some grand escape that included leaving behind absolutely everything she owned. And if she ran off without a man, how did she get there with her car left on the side of the road near the laundromat? The police were clearly not taking this seriously, so the family kept using P.I.'s, Larry had posters printed, passed around. They had friends help with more searches. They talked to any reporter who wanted to talk to get the story out there. Carol Blades was missing. The PI narrowed down the last place Carol was seen by tracking that package of cookies on her seat, and he found the store she bought them. It's not clear the exact timeline from the reporting, Like, did she buy the cookies, leave them in the car while she went into the laundromat? Or did she put her clothes in the washer, leave to get the cookies, and then was intercepted on her way back? She went missing in broad daylight, but there were no witnesses. So we don't know if she was 
intercepted in her car in some kind of carjacking abduction. We don't know if she was grabbed on the street, getting out of her car or walking and then forced to her car, or if she was taken from inside the laundromat. The carjacking theory is one that makes a lot of sense because it is believed that she was abducted in her own car. There were two or three witnesses who saw a man pull Carol's car over where it was found, get out of the car, and then run across the field. Carol was not with him. And if you remember, the car keys were also found in that field. The man had a corduroy jacket draped over his arm, and he used that to shield his face a bit. Though the witnesses, at least two of them, saw him well enough to have a sketch made. He was a white man with a tan complexion. He was average height, average weight. He had dark hair combed back. As he ran, he got whacked by a tree limb, like a branch that was kind of hanging low, So he may have had scratches to his face or bruises in the days immediately following Carol's disappearance. In spite of the Sheriff Department's continuing stance over the course of 1970 that Carol had simply run off, public opinion was not with them. They were pretty much the only people holding to this theory. The community, on the whole, disagreed with them. They raised a $1,000 reward. The community collected a petition and sent it in to get a grand jury investigation because they believed Carol had not only been kidnapped, but that she had been murdered. This is the community backing the family against the police department. On December 25th, 1970, Christmas Day, the family found out, unfortunately, that they were right all along. A farmer who lived west of, it's called Ponce, Missouri, but I think it's actually Ponce de Leon is the full name, but a farmer out that way, it's about 20 miles from where Carol had been last seen. He went out around two in the afternoon to check on his cattle. He had all his family at the house for Christmas, but it was really cold. And he noticed that his cows weren't in the usual fields. He knew that they liked to go out into the woods a bit, so he walked out to where there's a cedar grove on his property. Out of the corner of his eye, he noticed something that was white off in the woods, and he first thought it was a wayward cow. But when he went over there, he saw a skull sitting on a decaying white fur coat. It had been one year and ten days since Carol went missing. Her remains were scattered, probably due to wildlife. She hadn't been buried. Her body was largely obscured by a downed tree, and that's likely why she hadn't been noticed earlier. But again, this is a remote corner of a remote property, so it's really amazing that she was found at all. When the farmer rushed back into his house and told his family what he had just found, his daughter thought right away that that could be Carol Blades. They called the local police. They thought right away that was probably Carol. This had such major local news coverage that 20 miles away, their first thought was Carol Blades. 
The clothes were a match to what she had been last seen wearing, purple pantsuit, shoes, and a fur coat. A metal detector found her wedding and engagement rings about 20 feet away from where her skull was. They used dental comparisons to confirm the identity, but by the time the dental comparisons came back, they already knew. It was during Christmas dinner with his family that Larry got the call, and it was from Buff Lamb. Larry felt that Lamb's notification was rather cold. His sister had answered the phone. Larry thought that Lamb should have just told his sister because he's got this gruff manner, and she could have then broken it to Larry more gently. But instead, Lamb was just like, I think we found your wife's remains. Come down to the funeral home. Now, due to the state of the body, the cause of death was hard to determine. There was no obvious damage to the bones, no nicks from a knife, no breaks from a beating. There was no skull damage from blunt force trauma. There was also no blood staining on the clothing. So it was most likely strangulation as the cause of death. Carol's leg bones were found in her pants, so she wasn't dumped there nude, but it was impossible at the time to find any other clues of sexual assault at that point. They did collect the clothes and sent them to the crime lab for analysis. Now, obviously, no DNA, but I do wonder if they still have the clothes because we do have DNA testing now. However, after a year in the elements and 50 years in an evidence locker, I imagine the DNA would be severely degraded, but it would be interesting to see if there was something. Just as Buff Lamb had dug his heels in that Carol just ran off, now that he was proven wrong on that, he dug his heels in on his new theory that Larry killed his wife. He told Carol's parents that Larry would eventually slip up and incriminate himself. And they felt that he was not investigating pretty much anyone else very well because he was so stuck on his new theory. The investigation was being steered by polygraphs to a serious degree, but they still had Larry retake his after he passed the first one. And that's the thing that drives me nuts about how some agencies use lie detectors. They'll allow them to clear people they want to clear, but then suddenly they don't believe in them so much when their prime suspect passes the polygraph. But let's go ahead and look at Larry and the timeline to see if this is even possible. Larry's alibi was that he was home and asleep the whole day. No way to prove or disprove. Even the phone call he says he got at 3.45, he never made it there to pick it up, so that was not verifiable. Carol went shopping, she went home, she got the laundry. She then took the car the three to four miles and started the laundry. She bought the cookies along the way. No one saw Larry with her. He wasn't with her when she bought the cookies. So we can cross out the idea that he was the one who went to the laundromat bought the cookies, did all of that, and faked Carol's movements. We can also rule out the possibility that he rode to Nixa with her. Nobody saw him. He was not in Nixa with her. She had their only vehicle. So if he killed his wife, it follows that he would have had to walk the three or four miles to intercept her. 
Now, she would have stopped. Carol absolutely would have stopped and let her husband into the car if she saw him walking in town. So that would answer the question of how someone overpowered her and got in her car. Then Larry would have to kill her, drive her out to the field, dump her, and then park the car back near the laundromat and walk slash run the three to four miles back home to be home to pick up the phone at 645. Now, he doesn't match the sketch of the man running across the field, but maybe the witnesses were wrong. It is all theoretically possible. He could have done this in the time span he had, but this is also a lot of work to kill your wife this way. When you pretty much have 24-7 access to her, he could have done it any other time and not a time when he would have been spotted in broad daylight and when his alibi was that he was all alone. But here's why Larry didn't do it, even if it was possible he could have. The police were saying Carol ran off with another man. Larry was saying she didn't. Larry was looking for her. He was passing out flyers. He was talking to reporters. He got a private investigator involved. He was the one insisting Carol had been abducted and that she was likely murdered. He could have just leaned in and said, Buff, you're right. You must know best. You are the police. I can't believe she ran off on me, but I'll find a way to accept it. He could have just gone with that and been in the clear. But he didn't do that. The farmer who found Carol's body wouldn't have heard of Carol if it wasn't for Larry and, of course, her parents. Buff Lamb gave Larry an out early on when he said Carol ran off, and Larry did not take it. Now, Lamb is saying, oh, Larry, the guy insisting I investigate his wife's abduction... He must have done it. I mean, are you kidding me? This is not how it went down. And Carol's parents, Geraldine and Lewis, weren't exactly getting great treatment from Lamb either. They at least weren't being accused of murdering Carol. But according to them, he was incredibly abrasive. Geraldine cried at every meeting they had with him when they would ask for updates on the case. And she told the Columbia Tribune that she felt like Lamb was doing it on purpose. It's not that she was crying from grief or she was overcome with sadness. She was crying because he was being mean. These are grieving parents. The last update they got from Buff Lamb ended when Lamb kicked them out of his office. And they never spoke to him again. Well, not directly. They spoke through the newspapers a few years later, and we will get to some of that. But let's talk about some suspects. Almost all of them are unnamed, but I think we can assume the person was a local. This is a small town, and where she was found wasn't somewhere you would find just driving through. Someone knew how to get around this area. After Carol's body was dumped, the person took the risk of driving her car back into town to leave it before he took off. Based on the condition of the car, the mud, the scratches, and the missing gas in particular, it's safe to assume Carol was abducted in her own vehicle. 
the only reason to risk bringing the car back into town where the killer could have been seen and actually was seen is because he lived nearby or at the very least he parked his own car nearby. But if he had a car, I think he would have taken Carol in that you're less likely to draw suspicion driving your own vehicle. So as I look at this, the person was either staying in this area of Nixa or they lived there. Along the lines of this being a local, Geraldine said she knows someone who looks like the sketch, and he left Nixa either shortly after the murder or it was shortly after Carol's body was found. Either way, he didn't stay in town long after this. He was questioned by the police, but Geraldine says he was not polygraphed. Then there was a businessman, a guy who owned multiple local businesses, who failed a polygraph. When Geraldine pushed Lamb on this, Lamb said the man couldn't read or write, and that's probably why he failed the test. Since polygraphs are oral exams, I have no idea what he's talking about. Further, Geraldine openly doubted the level of this man's illiteracy because of how many successful businesses he was running at the time. I do know people who can do a lot with very serious skill gaps. So I'm not so persuaded that someone who was functionally illiterate wouldn't be able to run small businesses, but I don't know how that would affect a polygraph test. In February 1972, a tip came in that a 49-year-old Davenport, Iowa man knew something about the murder. Davenport is a good seven hours north of Nixa, but the man was from Mountain Grove, Missouri, which is in the vague area. It's about an hour away from Nixa. But even the Iowa police said straight up they were not sold on this guy. The information he had was scattered, and it was all stuff that had been published in a detective magazine. He didn't have anything special to offer. When he took a polygraph, he failed it. So they just kind of wrote this guy off. In 1976, Buff Lamb told the Springfield Leader Press that his relationship with Carol's parents fell apart because Lewis would keep doing this. He would keep naming suspects and then get angry when Lamb wouldn't arrest them. The family said this is not it. It was that he was mean and rude and obnoxious with them. But they also were starting to believe that Lamb was covering something up. Either he was covering up for the fact that he sat on the case for a year doing nothing, or he was covering for the person who did kill Carol. He was protecting them. But in 1976, we end up with a new sheriff in town. Buff Lamb lost the election, and the new sheriff told the media he had a decent idea who did it, and he was gathering evidence. In a December 1977 article, there was a reference to a 34-year-old man who was arrested at a Springfield motel on suspicion of first-degree murder in Carroll's case. It is a tiny article, and I cannot find a single follow-up to it. He clearly did not go to trial because that's not mentioned anywhere. So my guess is he was arrested They didn't have enough to hold him, and they released him. 
It's not clear if he's the person the new sheriff said he thought was involved or really anything. We don't know much about this lead, even though you would think an arrest in this case would have been a pretty big deal. I don't know if it's just my limited newspaper archives, even though I found a lot of stuff in them. Even more current reporting tends to not mention this arrest. And when it does, doesn't give any background information, anything more than I found. Anyway, in 1980, the Springfield Leader Press did a profile on Buff Lamb and his career, and Carol's unsolved case got brought up. This is a mark on his record. And I kid you not, this is Buff's response to being asked about Carol Blade's unsolved case. Quote, It should be forgotten. It's better that it not be brought up, because the more something like that is brought up, the worse it gets. Unquote. He also said the family started a rumor that Lamb himself was the killer. It is true that Lamb was a suspect by some in the general public. Never officially, but people couldn't figure out why he didn't investigate this as an abduction when all signs pointed to it. Three witnesses saw the man ditch her car. She had just finished adoption paperwork. She had a bassinet set up. She had decorated her Christmas tree, bought Christmas presents that day. She wasn't getting ready to run off, and it's really ridiculous to believe that. So some people say he had a motive to push this false narrative. There were those who thought he knew who did it and was covering for them, and there are those who think he did it himself. The family saw the article, and they wrote a response that was published about a week later. The title was, It Will Never Be Forgotten, Buff. And I do think that title says everything. By 1980, it had been less than 10 years since Carol's body had been found, and Buff Lamb is ready to forget it. He's like, yeah, we're done. No more investigating. Who cares about cold cases? It makes things worse to bring cold cases up. That's pretty ridiculous. But in this response article, the family said they did not start the accusation that Buff Lamb was involved in the murder because they don't believe he was. They said they thought he botched the investigation because he was incompetent and just bad at his job. So if they started any rumor, that's the one they started. Carol's brother later broke from this, like decades later. He brought back up the idea that Lamb was protecting someone so he's open to that idea. He basically said either Lamb was protecting someone or, in his own words, Buff Lamb was, quote, really plum stupid, unquote. Buff Lamb denied all the accusations against him, the accusations that he killed Carol, the accusations he covered up for someone, and the accusations that he's stupid. He died in 2001. There was a named suspect pretty recently named Mark Allen Smith. He's a serial killer who claimed more victims than have been officially linked to him. He killed four women in the 1970s that we know of, three in Illinois and one in Arkansas. And Nixa is only about two hours from the site of the Arkansas killing. And that murder happened a week before Carol's disappearance. And then a- another murder in Illinois was a month after. So 
if we look at our U.S. geography, everyone bring up your mental map, to get from Arkansas to Illinois, you go through Missouri. Now, you wouldn't go from where he was to where he committed the next crime in Illinois. You wouldn't go through Nixa. You would go on the highway about an hour east of Nixa. But that's not to say he didn't take a side trip. Additionally, Smith claimed he killed eight women in Germany while he was stationed there in the U.S. Army. Now, here's why Smith comes on the radar, not just because he was known to be within an hour or two of the spot Carol Blades was abducted from. It's one of the Illinois victims. Jean Bianchi was a 27-year-old woman who went missing after going to the laundromat. Her laundry was left behind. She was forced into a car and her body was later dumped. And this is the murder that occurred a month after Carol's. So this seems pretty spot on. The main difference here is the method. Smith stabbed Jean to death and we know Carol was likely strangled. But when the name came out and Things started looking like maybe Smith was a possibility. Geraldine, Carol's mother, wrote him a letter. He was confessing to crimes he had never been indicted for, so she was hopeful that he would tell the truth about her daughter's case. She told him it would help her if she knew exactly what had happened to her daughter and that if he had any involvement, he could just tell her. He is serving a 500-year sentence. He's never getting out, so you would think he would have nothing to lose by confessing to another crime. Well, he does have parole hearings. He is eligible for parole. He's never getting out, but there is a little bit of hope there. And Missouri, should they decide to take him to trial on the Carol Blades case, they could seek the death penalty. So he does have a little bit to lose by confessing. He did write back that he had nothing to do with it, but if he did, he would tell Geraldine. Regardless of his credibility, he's a bit of a long shot. As far as I can tell uh, from the reporting, he has no ties to Nixa. If you told me his cousin lived down the street from the laundromat, then I would probably think he was more plausible. But in the newspaper reports over decades that I have read, Nothing indicates this. Carol's case is unlikely to be solved due to the time that has passed, but mostly because of the poor early investigation. A year later, when her body was found, it was too late to inspect her car. It was too late to interview more witnesses in the area and all of that. If it was not for the family's PI, we would have even less information than we do. But there is some hope. In 1985, It seemed like deja vu when Jackie Johns went missing. Jackie was 20 years old, like Carol. She went missing from her job in Nixa. Her car was found along the same highway Carol's car was found. But in Jackie's case, no one could argue she ran off on her own free will because there was blood all over her car. She was found four days later in Lake Springfield, she had been beaten to death and dumped in the lake. For a long time after, Jackie's case was never mentioned without Carol's case also being brought up, pretty much in the next paragraph. 
the cases had too many similarities. And some people wonder if it was the same killer who struck 16 years apart. But in these 16 years, the idea of DNA was more developed. The concept of testing evidence for genetic identifiers was widely understood in 1985. And Jackie was also found much more quickly, just four days later versus over a year. They had preserved semen found on her body for a time when they knew they could test it more accurately than in the 1980s. And in 2007, they matched it to a man named Gerald Carnahan. If that name sounds familiar, it's because Carnahan came up in the Springfield 3 episode back when the show was still in sight. The conviction of Carnahan did rule out any connection between Jackie's case and Carol's case because Carnahan was only 11 years old when Carol went missing. So obviously he was not involved. But what the Jackie Johns case tells us is that cold cases can be solved if they can find DNA to test. I think that Carol Blades case is one that frustrates people who don't like unsolved cases more than any others. Because even if the DNA is not too degraded and they can get a profile or partial profile, how are they going to match it? It's been 50 years. The person who did this could very well be dead. The person who did this may have never done anything else after. It's hard for us to believe, but that does happen. So the person may not have a record after this. And they may have just flown under the radar like Carnahan did for so many years. I think what we learned from Carol's case is that the early investigation is vital to the solvability of any case. 